Hello, and welcome to the RA podcast at Manchester Metropolitan University. My name is Martin Kratz. June series of episodes will explore the intersections of science and art. In our second interview with Helen Mort and Catherine Adamson, we will explore how science and art working together can help to communicate the widespread effects of climate change and inspire people to action. You shouldn't, I don't think, try to, to, to separate the different ways that we understand those changing landscapes. You, you need as many perspectives as possible. You can join the conversation on Twitter by hashtagging ra underscore podcast. So let's get into our second episode in our science and art series. Today I'm talking to Dr. Catherine Adamson, Senior Lecturer in Physical Geography at Manchester Met, and Dr. Helen Mort, Senior Lecturer in Creative Writing. And we'll be talking about glaciers, poetry, and much more. Okay, I know more about Helen's work than I do about yours, Catherine. And when I was looking up what you did, yep. I came across a word and I thought I could look that up, but I can just start by asking. Yeah. What's a quaternary scientist? The quaternary is the current geological period. And there are phases that you probably already know about, like the Jurassic and the Triassic and Cretaceous. Or the quaternary is the one that we're in at the moment. So it's the last 2.6 million years or so. And we're still in it today. We'll be in it tomorrow. And it's kind of synonymous with the last ice age. A lot of people refer to it as the last ice age. So yeah, a quaternary scientist is anyone who researches that period of time, really. And your particular focus within that period is on the impact of climate change on glacial activity. So it's looking at how glaciers and ice sheets have changed in the past to help us understand what they might do in the future. That's the the gap that we're trying to bridge, really. Okay. And glaciers are kind of our are our link, aren't they, Helen? Because both of you have done work in Greenland. But Helen, you uh, worked on something called the Singing Glacier. Yeah, could you tell us a bit about that? Um, When I actually went to Greenland, um, I was there to write and I was there to take part in in a collaboration with a composer and a filmmaker to write an interdisciplinary sort of response to to the the glacier that we were on. Um, um, So we were in East Greenland. We flew to um, Kulasuk and then we went up the fjord from there. So most of the time we were just on our own um, camping and climbing and thinking about the, the changes that we were seeing, which certainly for, for me as a non-scientist, when you're reading about changes and about the scale of them, for me, I'd, uh, it feels like a terrible thing to admit, but perhaps it, it wasn't really brought home to me until we were there and people were saying to us, well, that's where this glacier was five years ago this is where it is now and 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 being kept awake all night by the sound of the ice carving into the fjord it it just sounds a bit corny to say but it it brought it into focus for me and and I I just didn't know how to write about it because I thought how do you begin to put this into a poem it feels a bit exploitative almost to try and make art out of it Catherine what does your work look like then on a day-to-day basis are you camped out in the same way yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we work also in East Greenland as well. So we normally stay there for a couple of days and just set ourselves up. And then, yeah, then we'll head out to whichever ice margin we're working on. Um, and we might stay there 
normally for like up to a week at a time, collecting samples and taking measurements. So samples of things like things that are in the river, the, the meltwater coming off of the ice. Then we walk back to the base, have a day or two processing those, and then we might go back out again. And yeah, so very similar, I imagine, actually. Um, camping, it's it's tough going, actually, but just so beautiful. And I think that's what keeps you, keeps you going because it is just amazing to see it all. So my first question I had here was, and at first I thought, this, this question is too stupid, but I don't think it is actually. What is a glacier? So, yeah, so basically it's just one big mass of ice. So typically they might form on a mountainside where you get snow piling up year after year and that eventually gets compressed. So it becomes an ice body rather than just fluffy snow. Eventually gravity will take hold and it'll start to move. And it's when it starts to move that it stops being just a patch of ice and it actually starts to be a, a fully fledged glacier and it's moving through the landscape. But movement is kind of the tipping point then. That's the key. Yeah. And then the kind of legacies of that movement we see, I don't know, I live in West Yorkshire, I'm not too far from lots of dales and things like that, and everyone talks always about those being formed by glaciers. I don't even know if that's right, or it's just something people say when they're on walks. <laughs> to sound cool. <laughs> yeah, to sound cool. Is it true? Are the Yorkshire Dales formed by glaciers? I don't know. Well, certainly we have had a big ice sheet over Britain in the past. So a lot of Britain has been moulded by glacial ice all over the place, really. Um, parts of the Lake District as well. Um, basically just th where the, the ice has moulded things and where we've got evidence of that meltwater coming out of the what was a, a huge ice sheet sat on top of Britain. That's kind of glaciers in theory. I imagine glaciers are not something you ever really get used to. The things I remember most are the scale of things. But I just remember one day spending sort of eight hours going across crevasses. And I remember getting to the end of the day and just bursting into tears for no reason that I was aware of. Just that there was something about being there that was awe-inspiring, but in, in, the, in the sense of awe as frightening as well as beautiful um there was something very maybe humbling or just 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 emotional about it I suppose even aside from knowing from thinking about them in the context of climate emergency it's just inherently emotional landscape to be in I don't know if you've found that at all Catherine but it yeah. just was yeah it is it's really unusual and it, like you said it's just so big and uh, I think it really puts you in your place yeah it really is nature just saying actually you're really small and mm. quite insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Even that, like uh, we've been in the field and then you'll get back to the tent or the base or wherever and the midnight sun is coming in and it's just this beautiful golden colour and everything is just completely silent. And to just be able to sit there and just soak that up is just so, so lovely. It's just beautiful. Like you said, it's, it's so hard to put it into words and to really... <laughs> express how beautiful it actually is yeah I, th I think that's why I was so glad that the final piece that we were trying to work towards was going to be a collaboration so that the poetry that I was writing was to fit in with silences and music and images and to try and produce quite a complicated response to a complicated um, place to be and the sound was such an important part of that. And the composer that I worked with, he'd listen. He'd be like, oh, it's like a Welsh male voice choir. And then he'd listen to it and he'd be able to identify the note. So he was treating the, the glossy like an orchestra. So on the one hand, we have its sort of simple, sort of monolithic enormity in our minds. This just this huge moving ice. But then 
You're also talking there about it being complicated and nuanced and an intricate sort of living thing, the, the kind of climate emergency and things like that. What does that then look like? We have that image of the ice peeling away into the fjord. Well, world over, I think uh, well over 90% of glaciers are now retreating quite rapidly. We've got ice coming off the front of the glaciers if they end in the ocean. We call it carving, so that's where icebergs are born. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of surface melt. So not only are they shrinking kind of this way, they're also melting that way as well. I think the problem that we're really seeing is not only the melt, because we're aware that they every year there's a little bit of melt and they might re recoup that. But the problem really is the pace of that change now is unprecedented. So we're seeing things that maybe there's no geological record for anymore. You know, we might have evidence of what glaciers have done in the past um, in response to natural climate change, but it's never been at this this speed that we see. And then there are obviously other big problems. So if we're melting an ice sheet at such a rapid rate, what does that do to sea level? What does that do to uh, the landscape around the ice? And certainly things like species in the Arctic are really um, affected. So that's something that really hit me, actually, going year on year and seeing birds that don't migrate there anymore, Arctic hare, Arctic fox, having a really hard time just navigating this landscape where the air temperatures are too high. So, yeah, lots of different changes not only for the ice but for the surrounding area and rest of the planet really. Why is Greenland so significant in this? I guess it's no coincidence that both of you work in very separate areas but you both ended up in Greenland so I guess my question is why? There is a long history of, of research in Greenland on the glacial ice um, and in the surrounding area as well. So really a lot of the stuff we're doing is um, not so much the ice sheet, but around the edges of it. And I guess not many people know this, but there are lots of little glaciers and ice caps all the way around the periphery of the big ice sheet. And they're seen as, to use another cliche, um, they're seen as like a canary in the coal mine. So they're smaller, so they respond a little bit more rapidly to air temperature fluctuations. So we're looking at using those as an indicator of how quickly the ice sheet margin might start to, to change. And if we can we can get a handle on those, then it's kind of globally applicable information on how rapid things can change. And um, yeah, it's been amazing, actually, some of the, the things we've been working on where they look like relatively large ice caps. But when you input you know, the geological record into a computer model of future air temperature, some of those will be gone within about 20 years because they'll just have melted away completely. And think, well, what on earth is going to happen to parts of the Alps and the Pyrenees and things like that? There's an interesting writing about Greenland, I think, as well. That's, I think, a growing awareness of the canary in the coal mine effect, maybe, like you say, Catherine. Yeah, po poetry sort of starting to shift its focus to thinking about those landscapes as well, definitely. Helen, describe yourself as being not a scientist, which I guess you're not, but actually your PhD was on poetry and neuroscience, I wouldn't want other people to think that I'm just borrowing what I want from science and sort of using it or distorting it because because obviously you can't just pick things out and plant them into your work. But I think the thing about writing about or responding to a landscape is that you can't do that because what unites us in this coming from two different disciplines and perspectives is the physicality of it it's the land itself and it's the experience of being there and we've both had the same 
kind of emotional reaction to that, I think, as a scientist and as a writer. And that just shows you how how inextricably linked that is and how you can't you shouldn't, I don't think, try to 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 separate the different ways that we understand those changing landscapes. You you need as many perspectives as possible. And and it'd be great if it was taught in a way that allowed for that. People learn in different ways, they respond to different things, and what makes them sit up and take notice might be quite unexpected so the more you can bring in science into artistic events and art into science then the better I think yeah yeah I totally agree um I think a lot of the time when we're doing the science we are so caught up in the science terminology and this very kind of robotic almost way of going about doing the work and publishing it in journals but to actually get that across to everybody else like you said Helen it's so difficult and people often respond better when they can feel it and it's a more personal connection so really like you said I don't think we can possibly separate art and science if we want to really get that message across to people we have to work together to do that because you see graphs in the newspaper of climate change and you see all these statistics but until you've experienced what that actually looks and feels like in reality that's so abstract and it's so easy to gloss over that but when you actually have this connection with a place or um, an environment and you think ah this is actually really terrible and we need to start doing something about this um that's when we'll start to get through and people will start to understand things a bit more totally agree the role of of poetry and artists and things like that is so important when we're trying to open up science to everybody else basically beyond our little science bubble i think poetry or art can be a bubble as well and so you know it works both ways we didn't i suppose we didn't want to think we were just we're making an aesthetic experience out of something that's very urgent and and unsettling so actually the the piece that we ended up making in the end was i found it heartbreaking to to listen to now we're lucky enough to be able to hear a clip from the singing glacier Glacier song. The Nudge Rasmussen Glacier does breathing exercises. In, then out. It holds a note of silence in its million cool blue throats and keeps it, lozenge made of cold. It wants to sing its own labyrinth, its library of absences. It's fins and hundred entry points. Mm. 
but it's not yet dawn, and the fjord is flat-backed, grey, and barely listening. The fjord wants to sing too, or chant the things it knows of ice. to say, a glacier underlines the earth, a glacier is all night gunfire, frozen fireworks, a glacier is nothing like a hearth, a glacier is a body and its nurse. A glacier is all the things it was and all the things it will be yet. A glacier is a misplaced bet. It wants to say, I am a glacier too. As the light folds in over the northern peaks, it won't say anything. The way the mountains it reflects hold quiet inside them, like new music. Strange cathedrals made of stone. And will not sing about the way they're lit at sunset, whole in late August, so the tips of them are bright as pokers, glowing coals. Collapsing ridges and their human trespassers, balancing, stern with the ballet of scree hopping. I really appreciated being taken to the glaciers of Greenland for a moment there. 
I was mindful of the idea they expressed that we'd need as many perspectives as possible when dealing with the big issues of our time and that artists and scientists need to work together. Thanks to the composer Bill Carslake on piano and Flora Curzon on violin, and of course to poet Helen Mort for letting us play that. You can hear more of The Singing Glacier online at theglaciertrust.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter for future podcast updates. You can find us at MMU underscore Ra. In our next episode in this series, I'll be speaking to artist Anthony Hall about his experiments and how his work crosses both science and art. Tune back in soon for more episodes. This episode was produced and edited by Lucy Simpson, presented by me, Martin Kratz, and mixed by Julian Holloway.